Good, some considerations uh, on the nature of sati, mindfulness. The recollection of the present moment, as my friend John puts it. Um, apologies to those who, to the uh, veterans of this course who have heard me speak about the images of sati as I will speak again tonight. Um, maybe it helps you to uh, affirm the power of these images in your mind. I find I find these images quite revealing. So as you know, mindfulness is the big Buddhist panacea. It's basically the quintessence of the Buddha. It's what we are told lowers blood pressure, um, makes us happy, transforms emotions, reduces stress, makes us grow old with dignity and without wrinkles. <laughs> it is completely without side effects. It's cheap. <laughs> and um, it basically brings out the best in us. Yeah? So, we are told. I personally believe we should put um, another spin on it, really, to make it really catch on. I think we should play more its anti-aging angle. You know, that would get it a little more mainstream than it is. It's still a little bit uh, sort of elitist right now. But if we get it down to actually, basically, this is the major anti-aging practice, then we could really have an, a broad effect broader than even now, broader than its military application, its clinical application, its corporate application. You know, getting it down to anti-aging will really taking out into the populace. I'm slightly tongue-in-cheek, as you suspect. So I would like to have some of the notions of mindfulness as they occur in early Buddhist teaching. Uh, there are people out there who claim that what the modern world understands as mindfulness and what the Buddhist teachings speak of when they speak of mindfulness is not a, a straight convergence, yeah? that there is some overlap but a rather remarkable degree of difference between the way the old texts and the contemplative tradition speaks of this quality and the way some of our uh, contemporary voices speak about the quality of mindfulness. Both camps definitely are in agreement that this is important. Yeah. This is a good start. So I could uh, drag you across many etymologies and uh, contextual attempts to define this quality with a, a number of passages. But instead of doing that, um, I thought of just naming a couple of contexts in which sati is important, according to the old texts, and then letting some of the images speak, because sometimes the images travel easier 
through time and through cultural differences than texts or text definitions. To make a definition work, you need to have a lot of context. You need to get a lot of verbiage out of the way or refer to a lot of this. And often the outcome is frustrating. Frustrating. It's definitions seem to be strangely ineffective in, in many domains of our life. The idea that you can define a word, for example, has always has always baffled me because words shift their they're slightly shape shifting, you know, depending on in what sentence or with what tone of voice you use them. The very same word can suddenly mean something else. So the attempt to get clarity, semantic clarity, yeah, clearly attributable, attributable semantic meaning to words is... Uh, I don't actually believe this is really possible, to be honest with you. It's in some lucky circumstances we can agree that you know, what serendipity means, because it's such a weird word, yeah? and it has a very limited number of applications. So there's a chance that when we say that word, we generally mean the same thing. But with many other words, this is not possible. If a word becomes very useful, if it is used in many contexts, then that word will start to have different facets and colorings and hues. And that's definitely the case with the notion of sati, with the notion of mindfulness. So early Buddhist teaching is adamant that mindfulness is crucial for mind training. It is central, it occurs in a number of lists. It's part of the right mindfulness, samma sati is part of the Eightfold Path. It is one of the bojangas, one of the awakening factors. It is one of the indriyas, as uh, you have heard recently. So one of the spiritual faculties. It is one of the balas, one of the strength. It occurs in the Buddhist teaching very early on. Yeah, the, the, the mentioning of Satipatthana happens shortly after the Buddha's awakening. Uh, one of the books of the Vinaya, I expect many of you not to be familiar with monastic discipline, which is which is a shame, yeah, because monastic discipline is a lot more than just the discipline of monastics. It's a corpus of teachings, lots of teachings, and a wonderful um, inroad into a deeper understanding how Buddhist people, Buddhist disciples lived because while trying to explain something about monastic life, it also explains a lot about life in general. And it explains something about the everyday lives of both monastic and non-monastic people. And these texts are laced with snippets of teachings, which are definitely worth knowing, even if you uh, do not have a monastic calling. So, the Mahavagga begins with a passage called the Bodhikata, the account of awakening. And in that account, there is reference to the Buddha's awakening and also that he um, understood the four frames of reference, the four dimensions of Satipatthana, the four establishments of mindfulness. 
And we find a reference to Satipatthana at the very end of the Buddha's life in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. A poignant record, definitely worth reading. You have several fine translations in English. I um, obviously would recommend you have a look. This is the 16th piece in, in the long discourses. You have a fine translation by Maurice Walsh in the green volume of the Diga Nikaya. And you have a very fine translation by um, Francis Story and an, uh, a nun called Sister Vajira, who uh, did that in Sri, back in Sri Lanka in the 60s, and both of fine translations. And they give you a very it's a poignant account of the Buddha's last two years of life. It's one of the few narrative accounts. Um, so it shows is not a situation, as I described uh, recently, like many Buddhist teachings, they don't give us a narrative, they give us a situation, yeah, a slightly decontextualized situation. And we're given basically the protocol of what happened at that afternoon. What happened before is not necessarily obvious, what happened afterwards is also not necessarily obvious, because the neighboring texts, they don't actually speak in temporal chronology. However, having said that, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta does precisely that. It is a chronology of the Bo roughly the Buddha's two last years and how he is heading basically northwards home from where he came, from where he was born. You know, political unrest and a few troubles uh, make it obvious that he was on his way ba back home to where he initially came from, um, the Sakyan part of the country north of the Ganges, going up, and he wanders by stages, and the stages get smaller and smaller because his health fails, and he, um, there's a clear sense of urgency he is um, giving, he, instead of waiting till the monks come to him, he sometimes sends his attendants and says, look, go and round up the monks, I have something to say, which is very uncommon. And one has a sense, yeah, the man knows it's not going to last very long and he wants to clarify a few things. So he revisits basically the um, key aspects of his teachings. You know. One of the things that emerges there is the famous 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, the 37 uh, the qualities that are connected, that serve as the wings to find awakening. Yeah? The Buddha's own list, so to say. Yeah? It's the Buddha's own PowerPoint presentation of his teaching. It's kind of cuve du patron. This is, you know, this is, this is the, the, the most distilled form of Buddhist teaching you can get, these kind of 37. And the, in these 37, you have, straight at the beginning, you have the four Satipatthanas. Yeah? So the Satipatthanas are there at the very beginning of the Buddha's teaching career, in the night of his awakening, and Satipatthanas are there at the end of his teaching career, still very, very central. But back to Sati. Sati is referred to in many, many images in the Buddhist texts. The word, I believe, the coinage, mindfulness, is quite um, fortuitous. It's a really... Um, 
I think it's a lucky, it was a lucky stroke by the translator uh, to coin that word. I've always understood this to mean the full presence of mind. Yeah? You give your full presence of mind to something. There's a very simple image, uh, which you may or may not have heard. Uh, the Buddha in some quarters, um, so legend tells us, did not turn his neck. Yeah? The Buddha had an elephant's neck. Yeah? I personally wouldn't take that all too literal. I don't actually think, uh, as some commentarial tradition tell us, that the Buddha, by virtue of his particular psychic power, was so uh, very powerful that he, his neck couldn't be turned because <laughs> the, strength, the strength was such that it didn't support a rotation of his sur cervical vertebrae. Um, I tend to believe uh, that is a an exegetical uh, maneuver that I would probably rate on the same level as the Temple of the Tooth in Sri Lanka or something like that, yeah, or, or kind of um, one meter eighty long footprints of the Buddha, things like that. Yeah. I would consider this to be pious um, attempts to elevate the Buddha to a superhuman status. Uh, if I'm listening to the text, it seems that the Buddha is quite capable of being mistaken with other of his monks, so people didn't immediately recognize him in a group of monks. Or Since he passed on his robe to some other monks who were grateful about this, I would expect he, he didn't have one meter and eighty long feet, so that's about, you know, that's that's quite a long, in terms of yards, this is almost, you know, this is almost two yards, okay? So since he given away his robe, and that seemed to work quite well, and even on his deathbed, he shared a robe with Ananda, and he gave one famously to Kasapa, so I would assume he must have had human proportions rather than feet of two yard size. So anyway, the fact that the Buddha has been called as having an elephant's neck, most famously when he, on his last round leaving the city of Vaishali, turned round with his body, facing the city he has just visited and looking back, and it is with some sadness that one has to hear uh, that he says, this is a beautiful city and I am visiting Vesali for the last time, and it is clear there's somebody acknowledging this takes place, this is a beautiful dwelling, this is a beautiful settlement, and I am now leaving this beautiful place and I will not return. Yeah, there's a kind of acknowledgement there. And he turned round his body. As you know, elephants, they're not famous for their um, neck mobility. So when they want to see something, they tend to t turn their bodies round. Yeah? So, why do I tell you this? I didn't want to drag you into zoology. Uh, I wanted to make an image of sati. Sati is likened to the Buddha's way of turning his full attention to something. That is what I believe this elephant's gaze means. Yeah. As the Buddha doesn't just kind of casually look over his shoulder uh, while 
much of his energy is going this way, he actually turns round and faces what he looks at. And in the same way, this is the point, in the same way sati gives its fullness to the matter at hand. So, so sati is likened to that elephant's gaze, meaning we're not doing things casually or sort of by the side. We're actually turning towards and giving our full attention to this. That's an interesting image of sati. There are other images of sati. One famous image is sati is likened to a minister. And it is said that as the king has a, uh, a minister who attends basically to the king's um, plans. He is quickly in assessing what is useful and what is not useful. And in the same way, Sati is quick in assessing what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. In the same way, a minister is astute in whatever the needs of his king are. The minister will apply his intelligence and his skills and his savvy to that particular task. In the same way, Sati will be in the service of profound understanding and a, a good stewardship of the energies that flow through this mind. Which is an interesting image, isn't it? It speaks of power and it speaks of versatility. Yeah. So sati is highly applicable. Then we have a number of images, some of them quite uh, different from each other. Famous one, sati, uh, as a post. Wild animals are tied to this post, chained literally, and these wild animals are, as they uh, are called, wild, and they want to tear away and go back into their domains. So there's a crocodile there that wants to go into the water, there's a bird that wants to fly up, there is a shackle that wants to go into the forest, there is a dog that wants to go back into the village, and so forth. Yeah. So the wild animals are pulling, six of them, are pulling all into different directions. But the post doesn't budge. And because the post doesn't budge, the wild animals, after a while, they tire. And they kindly become docile and stand and finally lie down and become tame. And still the post is there and grounds these animals and withholds their impulsive energies. And we are told sati is like that post. And those wild animals are our senses. Our senses, as I have alluded, are not passively receiving impressions, but are actively reaching out. Yeah? We're actively seeking functional pleasure of our sense functions. But if sati, as the stabilizing force, does not botch and helps us ground center earth and rein in, restrain in some way those impulses, then suddenly those very wild animals become actually quite tame and docile, peaceful. They stop doing that after a while. In the same way, so obviously the analogy, if we learn to center our mind and give it a task that is of a stilling nature, then our wild senses, our wild impulses, exerting their energy through our senses and dissipating this energy, will become gentle, will become pacified. And suddenly, we're in a different game. Yeah? A mind that is not at loggerheads with itself. 
a mind that is not itching to stimulate itself or run after things or run away from things or feel remorse about things or tries to get things or tries to figure things out. All this is coming to a gradual, peaceful, still end. Yeah? The animals are still there. They're not dead. Yeah? But they stop tearing and pulling at their leashes. So sati here, very clearly in the role of stability. Clearly sati as a prerequisite for samadhi, for stillness of mind. Famous image. Another equally famous image, sati is uh, in body awareness. Uh, uh, somebody with a bowl of oil, brimful, on his head, walking through a crowd of people who are... Uh, assembled to see somebody sing and dance. Uh, the, uh, the, the Janapada Kalyani, the, the bell of the country, as I think it's, uh, one could translate that. Yeah. So a crowd that is not highly sensitized to some poor guy who has to walk with balan uh, you know, balancing a bowl full of oil on his head. And that man has to have has a second guy behind him with a drawn sword who threatens to lop off his head at the first drop shed. Yeah. So he has to walk through a crowd at the risk of losing his head as soon as he sheds some of that uh, oil. And the kind of attention he pays to his movements and to his body are are what the body, what the Buddha calls body awareness, kaya sati. Yeah. And the Buddha says, you know, if, if the man at the peril of losing his life uh, has to do this, fulfill this task, what do you think? Would he be careless where his body moves? Would he be careless in how he, how he goes about? Yeah. Uh, and the monks clearly say, no, no, he would give utmost care to be highly vigilant what comes towards him, what might nudge him, he would be highly careful how he moves, where his balance, where his center is, whether he slumps, you know, because he's going to lose his head if he does slump. So this is an image for body awareness, which I think is quite, uh, is quite strong, isn't it? It has something almost punitive. We'd all had lost our head, isn't it? One time a little nodding off, a little drowsy in the morning <laughs> meditation and, you know, off with his head. A bit tough one, isn't it? Uh, my early path was in the Japanese Zoto Zen tradition, which is famous for hitting each other. It's not the most famous for hitting each other. Obaku tradition is more, even more famous. Than, um, but Zoto, my, my particular tradition, was very much into uh, hitting. It was... Um, I quite um, liked it, actually. <laughs> it was a lot easier than coping with sleepiness. You know, just <laughs> when you felt a little bored or drowsy, you just politely made gusho. <laughs> and then you would hear the swoosh, the swoosh behind you, some naked feet and long robes, and then <coughs> somebody would hold you the stick of awakening on the shoulder, just to let you know it, it is time now, prepare. And then you would kind of bend your head to one side, and then somebody would give you a nice, well-executed sort of double whack. Tuck, tuck, yeah? And if done properly, you know, they generally get your shihatsu points up here, yeah? 
And, you know, for the rest of the sitting, you're just having this wonderful electric jolt going right down into your toes, <laughs> and you're just buzzing with energy. Yeah? This was a lot more fascinating for me than, say, coping with, you know, drowsy, flaccid energy states. So I kind of made abundant use of this opportunity. It uh, was a bit less pleasant if you were on a big retreat and, you know, this kind of hundred people sitting there and after 15 minutes of sitting, suddenly it starts and then you have for the rest of the sitting, basically, the sound of whacking, which I did find a little disturbing. And it never taught me anything about how to be with my sleepiness. I needed to do Vipassana retreats after that to figure that one out. Well, you just kind of sit, sit with it. That was quite, that was a lot more ascetic for me and a lot more tough, rather than just asking and <laughs> be hit and <laughs> feel energized. Yeah. So, I think the quality of vigilance in that image is the most interesting aspect. Yeah. Mindfulness has many components. I alluded today that one component is attention. Attention is something we can generate, it is deliberate, we can direct it, we can focus it, we can open the zoom or we can close in. Um, but there are other aspects too. Mindfulness. One of them is vigilance. Yeah. Vigilance is usually a kind of particular awareness, slightly expecting something bad to happen. So it's not technically a particularly wholesome state. It's useful, but it's not something we want. We don't want to confuse mindfulness with vigilance. Yeah, vigilance would mean you just sit there and you expect particular bad things to happen. Yeah. So if you're vigilant, you have actually an idea of what you already expect happening, and you're just making sure, skimming the horizon, where, where the, the baddies are not appearing on the horizon. And you're not, really, you're not really peaceful about it. You're just, but you're very vigilant about it, so that whenever something happens, you can uh, take steps. So that vigilant aspect, I think, is very clear, and it is asking from us to do something which we are not doing with our bodies. Because our bodies, when they feel reasonably okay, when they're not cold, or not in danger, or not hungry, uh, or not squeezed, or not in the risk of falling down somewhere, or being um, anything exposed to light, or temperature drops, or wild animals, then somehow we go, we take away our attention from this body and we go somewhere else. We can be remarkably far away from our bodies, isn't it? There's this guy in one of James Joyce's, I think it's one of the stories of Dublin, I forget which one, it's Mr. Duffy. And Mr. Duffy only lived a short distance from his body, you know, which I thought always is a brilliant, brilliant little description sort of, uh, of what dissociation could be framed as a sort of harmless kind of private little dissociation, just living at a short distance from one's own body. Yeah. And Mr. Jais was definitely not a meditator, so we can't blame this on Buddhism. I think he understood this from a very different angle, but I think 
We all know what that means. We can be physically in one place and yet our hearts and our minds and our senses can be somewhere else. The vigilance brings us very, very strongly back into the body and lets us attend to functions of the body while our automatic response to, say, non-dramatic bodily situations would lead us to go away from the body, would lead us to not pay attention. Other images. Famous images, two gatekeepers, two images of a gatekeeper. One gatekeeper is standing at the entry of the city and protecting the city from people who do not belong there. So some of them who do not belong there he questions and he lets in and some of them he questions and he doesn't let in. So the gatekeeper uh, has the function of protecting the city. Um, interesting, isn't it? Quite clearly discernment there. It's quite... Uh, it makes us... It makes me uneasy, this image. I don't know what you think, but I, you know, I think, uh, who is he to keep people out of the city? Or, you know, I think of refugees being kept, kept out. I think of poor Rohingyas floating somewhere in the Southeast Asian Sea. I think of all these guys who drown in the Mediterranean trying to reach Italy. Or um, It doesn't leave me with good feelings, this image. But I'm... Um, I'm trying to understand what the suttas mean. It says, sati is discerning. Sati is not non-judgmental. Yeah. Or if non-judgmental means non-discerning, doesn't matter either way, I'm just going to be observing it. No, that's not what the, the text says. The text says, look, <laughs> discernment has a space and there is some ac action that takes place on the basis of such discernment. The commentary is very explicit and says, you know, as the gatekeeper protects the city from unwholesome influences, so sati protects the human heart, the citta, from unwholesome impulses, from letting them in, or from letting impressions in that give rise to unwholesome impulses, which is an interesting image. Second image of the gatekeeper is completely different. Again, this is a gatekeeper waiting in front of the city's gate and he waits for messengers. The messengers bring a truthful message. Messengers are called Samatha and Vipassana. This is a... They're siblings, that's important to know. They're not, they're not, they're not enemies. Sometimes people <laughs> construe these aspects to be almost inimical, mutually exclusive aspects of Buddhist meditation and you have to make your choice of one and it cannot be combined with the other, which is uh, wildly off the mark when we look at the old text. So it's considered these two messengers to be siblings, not just friends, actually siblings. So when these messages arrive, the gatekeeper makes sure that these people do not get lost in the city. They do not get lost in the market day. They do not get lost in the small uh, alleys because they do not know the city. And the gatekeeper uh, brings them in, on, in the fastest way to the governor of the city. Gatekeeper clearly in the service of efficiency here, or economy even, if you want. They don't have much energy left, they come from afar and they need to deliver their truthful message to the governor. So the best thing to do is to take them on the straightest route to that governor. That's an interesting image, isn't it? Sati quite clearly in the service of effectiveness. 
Then we have um, a number of images that depict sati as having something to do with overview, panorama, sort of the bigger perspective. Uh, once is a man that is climbing into the, either onto the roof of his house or onto uh, an upper story so that he overlooks the country. Uh, another time it is referred to as being like a charioteer who sits on the bench of his chariot and overlooks the road, overlooks his uh, draft animals, overlooks his load and again has some kind of perspective over a number of things. So it's a, it's a kind of a peripheral, there's, I think we would call this some peripheral vision is part, some panorama is part of that notion of sati. Then again we have images of sati. Uh, one very uh, poignant image is the image of a surgeon uh, receiving a Buddha a Buddha's day ER surgeon, he is uh, receiving a man that has a, an arrow wound. Yeah. The shaft is broken off, the arrow is buried in the man's flesh, and the surgeon does not see the actual arrowhead. So he uses an instrument to ascertain the shape, the size, and the lay of that arrowhead buried in the man's body. Hmm? This is interesting. What the eyes do not see, the instrument makes possible that our man can, our, our surgeon can actually have the information of. And he uses a probe. And with that probe, he touches into the wound. You have to imagine something that is at once fine enough that it doesn't make the wound really much bigger. Uh, and at the same time, that is probably solid enough that it gives a tactile impression of what the man touches with it. Yeah. And upon receiving the information, with the help of his probe, uh, the doctor then removes the arrowhead with, uh, I think we would say, minimally invasive. Uh, and uh, uh, even manages to wash out the poison, we are told. So, Sati is likened to that probe that turns what is not visible to the eye into information that is discernible through the help of touch. Yeah? It slightly hurts this image, doesn't it? It does hurt me, the idea of having such a probe inserted or in one's wound, yeah, even worse, doing it to somebody else. Um, and yet it is quite telling, isn't it? Sati serves as a way to understand something my eyes cannot understand. It turns obvious what is not obvious. Sati very clearly in the sense of um, investigation, examination, um, probing into the nature of things. Then we have a few interesting images of Sati. Uh, the cowherd boy in two, two instances. One instance is uh, the field is full of uh, grain. Grain is ripe, but the cows are running away from the meadow into that ripe, into the field of ripe grain. And the cowherd boy has a hard time to keep these cows away from that field because he wants to obviously avoid that the cows the, destroy the crops, either by eating or by stomping on them. So he has to scream 
he has to jump up and down, he has to shake his arms, and he has a stick, and he hits the cows. And this practice is called rakati, protect. So, um, it's not the protection of the cows, it's the protection of the field, and probably also the protection of the boy from trouble, you know, because uh, settlers and cow herders, you know, there's a long history there, and it hasn't always been happy. So, cut, we have the same scene, two months later, the fruit, fruit has been harvested, the grain is uh, taken home, um, and the cows, now without any possibility to, any temptation to run away from their grass, they're just happily and peacefully grazing on the meadow. And our boy is not jumping up and down, is not screaming, is not shaking a stick, is not doing things. It's just lying there in the shadow of a shrub and occasionally lifting his head, looking over, acknowledging his cows. They are still there and I don't need to do anything. Now, this practice is called establishing sati. So, interesting. Now, I would like you to not think of this, that... Sati is only lying in the shadow and not doing anything. I would like you to think practice is sometimes jumping up and down, shaking your stick and making sure that the cows, when they're wild, do not do damage. That is practice. Yeah. And sometimes uh, your practice will be like the boy sitting in the shadow, just establishing, ah, oh, my cows haven't run away. There is no reason why I should be concerned. They do look quite peaceful over there and goes back into a restful space, open, spacious uh, kind of mind. Yeah. It doesn't say that the first type of activity is wrong. On the contrary, we are made to understand the first type of activity is sometimes needed and it is necessary that we're capable of doing this. Yeah, even though it feels unpeaceful, even though it doesn't, it feels effortful, even though it's hard work. Um, we are quite clearly made to understand that sometimes the mind is like that. Yeah. And if your mind just happens to behave like a tiger, then uh, your job is to ride that tiger. Yeah. If this is a white water ride, then your job is to stay afloat in that white water ride. Yeah. You don't kind of say, okay, sorry, I can't meditate now. It's just not peaceful enough. Um, the practitioner's attitude, as we are told here with the boy, is, well, if you know, big steps are necessary and uh, fairly decisive action is needed to, to get my chitta back on track, then I need to make sure that I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to say, just stay awake. Yeah? My practice now is maybe just staying awake if the mind is drowsy or willing off, or if it is self-destructive and goes into all kinds of horrible self-accusations, uh, then the task is, I do not let it do that. I do not give consent to this. Yeah. Who hasn't experienced self-destructive ways of thinking? And rather than kind of hoping there in a sort of childlike way that we will be beamed up, you know, into a paradise where this doesn't happen, what just happens in my mind, we are encouraged to not consent to this activity, to not give it our energy, to not let this take root, to not believe this, to not slavishly following our thoughts, but to actually make 
every possible step for our mind to not run with these energies. Yeah? Like our cowherd boy has to make every possible step to prevent these cows from running into the ripe field. An interesting image speaks of sati as being likened to the plow and to the goad of a plowman. The uh, plowman has two oxen which are on a yoke and they walk and these oxen need to be kept straight. Sometimes oxen are not... Uh, I don't really claim I have a lot of experience with plowing with oxen, to be honest with you, but I am told that they're not always walking straight. You know? So they need a little bit of direction. They need a little bit of support. Uh, and that support comes from the goad. It's uh, plow the plowman actually looking to keep a straight furrow, and for that he needs to have an eye on his animals and what they're doing. And he also needs to make sure that his plow goes into the earth. Now this is a simple contraption, that plow. And it consists of a piece of wood probably protected with an, with an iron um, sheathing. Uh, and that goes into the earth. There is some footrest there which allows you to place the weight on there so that you can gauge how deep it goes into the earth. If it goes too deep, the plow will probably be torn apart because it gets stuck and the animals will just pull. If it doesn't go deep enough, it will just scrape the surface and it will not actually throw the earth up and uh, turn it properly. So the double task of sati is looking for an attuned degree of application, at the same time looking for a clear direction. That's an interesting image. It says, you can't just focus on effort, yeah? It says you have to make sure that the direction is okay and then you have to make sure that the application is also okay. Yeah. The commentary tells us that as the plow turns the earth over to make what was invisible now visible, so sati turns over the um, understanding of the three lakanas, the three characteristics, namely anicchata, dukkata, and anattata, they were not immediately visible, but now, because of sati has plowed the surface of phenomena in such a way that the investigating mind can see these characteristics, um, this is the basic analogy here. Interesting one, isn't it? Uh, we have sati mm, likened to salt in food. That's an interesting image. Um, the job of sati is to bring out the flavor of other ingredients of your food. Yeah. So it, uh, there is some saltiness, but actually what the salt does, it enhances some of the flavor of the other food. That is what is described. And in the same way, sati enhances the mind's functioning. This is very, very clear in a particular application of sati, namely one of its uh, functions amongst other things is the, the updating of our perceptions. Yeah. Sati updates and makes more accurate our perceptual process. Perceptual process is at best iffy, 
uh, because perception in Buddhist psychology is the meeting point of immediate sensory experience that is more or less packaged, serialized, and then these serialized chunks of sensory information are labeled with perceptions, they're given names. So, in other words, perception, sanya, is the moment when something that actually takes place right now in the immediacy of my sensory embodiment, and that is labeled with something that comes from my memory. Yeah? So it is both interpreted and named after something that I already carry from the past, but yet it refers to something that happens just now. So that meeting point is perception, which is uh, slightly dicey because if my perceptions are accurate, I can actually learn something. If my perceptions are not accurate, then it means I keep meeting what is actually new and I keep meeting what I already know. I keep translating what is fresh and new into a system of understanding that is maybe obsolete, stale and inaccurate. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't seen this? We have genuine meditative experience and then we walk out of this experience and we interpret those experiences in obsolete and inaccurate models of thought. Yeah, that happens a lot to us. That's one of the reasons why it's useful to learn something about Buddhism, not just about mindfulness, but actually about Buddhist psychology or Buddhist epistemology or history of ideas. Yeah. So, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Sati, like salt in the food, bringing out the flavor of other foods, Sati is capable of updating perceptual process of making it more realistic. It does an awful lot of things, this sati. You know, psychologically, it takes us out of our automatic loops, it uh, deepens our appreciation of positive experiences, it uh, stops us from repeating unhelpful stuff like depression, reactivity, it um, uh, makes us, it instills some realism in our notions of, say, meanness, notions of ownership, notions of stability, notions of pleasure, yeah. um, notion of gratification, you know, sati has some really powerful things to offer. When we, any of those notions, you know, self, ownership, stability, pleasure, gratification, any of those notions, sati can tell, can really inject some realism, you know, because they tend to be highly overrated. That overrating takes place with the denial of the uh, hallmarks of existence, with the denial of the lakanas, and sati can bring awareness in a very small way to change. It can bring awareness to conditionality and dependency. It can bring awareness to impersonality. And that is very powerfully transformative because that works directly on our perceptions. Now, perceptions in turn, they trigger a lot of our affective responses. It's the beautiful that I feel attracted to, I long for. It's the good I feel jealous of when I see others getting it rather than me. It's... Um, 
you know, it's the kind of perceived failure which I uh, take as a basis for my self-hatred. Yeah. Now, if we can figure some of, if we can weaken some of the hardness of these perceptions, then our corresponding emotional reactions will also be gravely altered. Yeah. So, sati being capable of altering our perception is very powerful in actually transforming our reactiveness, our habitual responses, to the good and the bad, to self and to other. So that is a real major role of sati. Then obviously sati is necessary for basically the development of the great departments of practice, sila samadhi panya. For sila sati is necessary uh, in fact, through its discernment of the wholesome and the unwholesome. For samadhi, sati is necessary as the stabilizing factors. Yeah? It's the stabilizing factor to maintain attentional focus beyond a gratification or the promise of gratification. In other words, to help us go from involuntary, habituated attention to voluntary and deliberate, uh, attuned attention. Yeah? from the sort of episodical um, gratifying seeking and pleasure, uh, this pleasure avoiding uh, type of attention to a profound sustained embodied mindfulness. That's the path. So let me think, there's another image, quite sweet. Asati is uh, this, uh, a key term and that term is Apilapanatan, which has two meanings. One is the non-fading, and one is non-confusion. So one of the key issues of sati that comes out of many, many images is always something called non-confusion. Yeah. And uh, a cute image is, um, the story is when you throw a, a gourd into water, it floats away with the drift of the stream. And sati is precisely not like that gourd. It does not float away. It enters and penetrates into the object that it associates with. Yeah? So sati is entering into rather than floating away. Yeah? I think that's an interesting image. The image of the current flowing, I think, is likely to evoke some of the current of association that may move through your mind. And we uh, often probably I don't know maybe it's just not maybe it's just me now yeah? but the, the floating away seems to be a familiar experience so I'd like to finish with a last example that is from a contemporary monk he's still alive he wasn't here today it wasn't one of them but uh, it's a monk I had the privilege to spend some time with he's a wonderful erudite his name is Bhikkhu Payutra, that is how he calls himself, and his ecclesiastical names have changed over the years. He has become a famous, one of probably the f most famous Thai scholar monks who uh, holds a great, is held in great esteem. And he has coined a little image uh, to show the working of sati, of um, uh, Yonisomanasikara of wise investigation and a few other things. So the image goes like this. There is a woman 
with a little boat trying to go and cut lotus stalks, lotus flowers. Yeah? Lotus you can sell or you can eat. Yeah? So, uh, and to make sure that uh, this works out, she kind of paddles out into the river. There's a slow current uh, where the lotuses are. And there she throws an anchor. And then she takes out a big knife and reaches over, bends over and holds <coughs> the lotuses, which I trust many of you have seen lotuses. They're not like lilies. The lotus actually grow above the water line, yeah? while the lilies stay floating on the water. The lotus actually has its stem going over the water line. So she bends over and then she does this movement with the stems of the lotus and she bends these stems and then with the other hand she has her machete, her Thai meat, and she cuts these stems. So, uh, how does this analogy work? The boat is the mind. The anchor that helps to hold the boat in place is sati. The drift that would take the boat away, that's the associative drift of our thoughts streaming away associatively. And the bending of the stems is called yonisomanasikara. It's the wise reflection or um, the skill in examination. It's a preparatory type of wisdom. And then the knife that cuts the stems is this is wisdom proper. So I think the image tells us that these things work together. You know? Sati doesn't do the job alone. And we need a number of factors. Sati in the suttas has many, many friends. And if you take Sati's friends away, even if only to elevate Sati in its importance or its inefficiency, you are actually making Sati weaker. Yeah? So by just praising Sati and not speaking about the other faculties of mind, you're actually weakening the effectiveness of sati, because one of the powers of sati is the fact that it has many friends, that it is connected, um, as I have begun to explain, uh, to s the development of ethics by discern discerning, for example, the wholesome and the unwholesome. It's also, it's also uh, crucial in the development of stillness uh, by creating stability. And it is crucial for the development of wisdom by establishing this non-floating away, this non-distracted, this non-dissipated type of examining mind that can deeply understand. Yeah. So in a way, you can say, Sati is at the hub of all the major developments. The one I haven't mentioned so far is the Brahma-Vihara. Sati is also needed for the Brahma-Viharas. Yeah. If you want to develop those four immeasurables, uh, friendliness, compassion, joy and equanimity, you, you will need forms of sati as well. So in many ways sati both mirrors all this, so small aspects of sati are already holding in seed quality the, the differing dimensions. Ethical, there's an ethical dimension to sati, there is an investigative wisdom dimension to sati. There is a stillness, samadhi dimension to sati. And sati is never clinically neutral. It is also, it, it has uh, a, a Brahma-vihara flavor. Yeah? It has um, a flavor of those 
metta, karuna, mudita, opeka. So we're never really in a sort of cleanly, non-relational type of sati, just bare aware, yeah, as one of the uh, famous misnomers, uh, I think, uh, states. The notion of bare awareness uh, was deeply regretted by the man who coined it, um, so we are told. It's probably one of the most misleading notions that are kind of current. You know. There is no such thing as a bare or naked awareness. Awareness is its never neutral. It always has a vantage point. You're never without needs. And it's never kind of clinically empty. It has a relational quality to it. Yeah. More loving or more compassionate, more joyous or more equanimous. But these are all relational qualities. Yeah? Empathy is something about a relational dimension. And let me end by saying the smallest unit of experience is not one, it's two. Yeah. Even if you're absolutely alone on the moon, it's still two, because it's you in relationship to your own experience. So, in many ways, Sati speaks of a number of things. The images, I think, are quite telling. They speak of open placidity, they speak of discernment, they speak of investigation, they speak of stabilizing, they speak of efficiency, um, they speak of protection and a calm knowing. Um, they speak of non-floating away, they speak of uh, non-fading away, they speak of bringing back what was lost. Um, and the simplest way I can refer to the common denominator in there has something to do with the relationship. A willingness to relate, a capacity to relate, and uh, a sustainability in that relational application. Good, let me stop here. Um, we're going to do some more details on some other occasions. So thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.